that's the way clarity is sometimes. It, it sometimes it'll come to you later uh, when you think, oh, oh, I should have been noticing that. And, and I, I think with Jesus that, that there's a clarity with him and, and there's a lack of clarity at times when we read him. Think, it makes us think, makes us wonder, makes us ponder uh, some of these things. So I've sort of been locked up in John 6. I, anybody notice that? <laughs> Uh, because there are some things here that, that I think need to be uh, really clear in our mind. They, we don't want to look back on them in 10 years and say, well, yeah, that made sense. But, but now to say, you know, there, uh, there's some clarity about a couple of issues here that, that, I, that I think I really need to have. And so if, you're, if you'll turn to John 6, I, we're going to finish today, I promise. We're gonna, no, we're going to stop today. I don't know if we're going to finish. We're going to stop and move on. I told you that in the Gospel of John, particularly <clears throat> where we'll be working toward are these great I am statements that Jesus makes. He makes seven of them uh, throughout this gospel. And this is actually the first one. When Jesus, at the end of what we looked at last week about Jesus uh, working on making clarifications about people's expectations of Him, of what He's about, and then some clarity about the matter of what is faith, what, what does belief, what is the, when He says this is the work of God that you believe, that, that's pretty important. So what is that? look like? What does that mean? We discussed that. And then Jesus in verse 35 says this, Jesus then said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst again. But I said to you that you have both seen me, but yet you do not believe. All that the father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me. That all whom He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now we're going to stop there because we've got a couple of more uh, verses uh, further that reiterate or, or continue to discuss this matter. And so I want to look at it, uh, uh, this idea about Jesus' clarity here as He makes some profound statements. Uh, if you'll notice in your Bible, you can just mark this if you want to for later. I was going to try to do this last week, but you'll note that in the verses previous to that, Jesus refers to in the Bible the work of God, <clears throat> the work of God, which is to believe in Him whom He sent. And now we're moving into the will of God. He keeps saying, I've not come to do my will, but the will of Him. Is, and we'll, we'll look at what that, what that will is. I think it's kind of nice there. It kind of, kind of fits nicely that, that Jesus is getting real clear about what the work of God is. Well, we want to know what that is, don't we? We're to, we're to believe it. And then what is the will of God? So we'll look at that. So look here, first of all, in this clarity matter. Jesus' clarity, He claims to be what we need. Now, notice there when he says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of these seven wonderful statements that, that, that at least caused the hearer that was Jewish to think because he is using in Greek a term. It's ego. That's the word for I, ego. It's not the thing you put in a toaster. I guess it could be. Ego eimi, I am. And it is a transliteration from the Old Testament of Hayah, which is the Hebrew term when God says to Moses, tell them, Hayah, I am. 
So, so this is not just Jesus identifying himself. I am this, you know, I am a teacher. You know, I'm, that's, that's what I do. I'm a teacher. I'm a husband. Uh, I'm, I'm a person that's buying Becky a new lawnmower because they're going on sale. Um, really, they are. It's great. I told her that. I, wanna, I want you to have this one. Uh, uh, that's not the same force when I say I am a teacher. I am a husband. I am buying Becky a lawnmower. The I am here is, is, is shattering to these people. Ego a me, I am. That right there is, is enough to stop Jesus dead in his tracks with these guys because he's declaring, I'm God. And he says, I am the bread of life. He, look here, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now that, that's a pretty bold claim, if you want to say. Now think about that, because uh, Stanton made a good point last week when he said, when Jesus, you know, they said, give us this bread always. You know, bread was in short supply. I mean, people live from hand to mouth, literally. Most workers got a, what we called a denarius a, a day. That was the equivalent of a one-day labor. It was enough basically to feed your family and meet the bare necessities. Of, and I just thought of that song. Mm-mm-mm. I know. Stop it. Stop it. <clears throat> Yeah, stop it. Some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all need to get more, out more often. Uh, <clears throat> just enough to survive. Now listen, when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life and you'll never hunger. Well, people's ears are perking up, you know. Wow, I've, not, I've never had this kind of bread before. I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the bread of life. And if you'll come to me. And, and you'll notice earlier that the people had said, you know, that Moses gave us bread, manna, in the, in the, in the desert. I've often laughed, you know, it says there, he gave us bread. Why don't you give us, great, great leader, give us bread. You know what the word manna means? What is it? <laughs> manna. We go to the cafeteria sometimes at the college and go, manna. Because <laughs> we don't know. You ever had the mystery meat casserole at your college? Anybody had that? <laughs> Moses gave them manna. He gave them bread. Why don't, why don't you? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the staple of life. I'm the... I'm the source of life for you. Uh, you know, I thought about that. What are the staples in Mexico, according to uh, Google, which is always right. Uh, the, the staple in Mexico is corn uh, for tortillas and tamales and, and different foods like that. Uh, in Italy, it's, what do you think? Pasta. Yeah, yeah. In France, it's French fries. No, no, no it's not. Ireland, potatoes. Yeah. Canada, Canadian bacon. Don't know. I don't know, but I wrote that down. You know, every culture has a, a staple that, you know, that they're known for, or that's kind of their uh, ethnic food, whatever it is. Well, bread is understood as the staff of life. Even Jesus was born at a place, Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Beth, uh, house of, lehem is, is bread. The, the house of bread. Here, here the, the bread of life that Jesus is saying, is saying I, I'm what you need. He was born at the place called the house of bread. And Jesus is saying, I'm what you need. I, I bring you. Now notice what he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. This is an interesting term here. And the, and the phrase here, whoever, notice here, whoever uh, 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 comes to me and believes in me will never... Th- those are present 
durative verbs. And they mean come to me and keep coming, believe in me and keep coming. This idea isn't that you know you come to Jesus as the bread of life and you have a snack, say, good, thank you, I'm done, see you later. This is the idea of a continual feeding, a continual kind of eating and feeding that Jesus is the source of our life. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a just a hit and miss thing. It's a, it's a continual feeding. You know, I, I, I don't miss many meals. <laughs> and and I, you know, I, I enjoyed what I had two days ago, but, but I want to eat again today, right? And, and that's, we have to continually feed. We, we, we live because we, we can, and Jesus said, you, you, you come to me, you keep coming to me, you keep feeding on me. I'm the source of what you need. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. Now, that, that could be a phrase that people say that when, you know, in that culture, if you eat bread, you're alive. But Jesus uses an interesting term here, zoe. Zoe. <clears throat> zoe is a word that is usually reserved for life that isn't just biological. It's, 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 it's a word that, that doesn't just mean life that's physical. It's a word that is used that life, that is life indeed, and understood as coming from God. Jesus said in John 10, we'll see it someday, He says, when we get to chapter 10, <clears throat> whenever that will be, at this rate, I'm not making any promises. <clears throat> when Jesus said, I have... Yeah. <laughs> The millennial kingdom will be here. <clears throat> when Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, it must mean you don't. Right? If I've come to bring it, because Zoe here, the bread of life, this idea of life is the kind of life that comes from Jesus. I've said this so many times, but I want, you know, remember the scriptures teach us that if people are not saved or followers of Jesus, whatever you call it, it's, it's not. Their problem is not that they're bad. Their problem is they're dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Separated from the life of God. Jesus is saying, look, I, I'm bringing you bread that, that, is, that has real life in it. That you have existence. You know, we all do have that. But, 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 it's, but it's not the bread that brings life. I've got that kind of bread. John Wesley's favorite definition of the Christian life that shook me up years ago was this when he said, it's... His definition of the Christian life is the life of God in the soul of man. Now that's more radical, isn't it? The life of God in the soul of man. As I said before, there's somebody living in there. So Jesus said, I've come to bring you the bread of life. Not, Not the bread of rules. Not the bread of legalism. Not the bread of try harder. Not the bread of be better. Or not the bread of promise not to do that again. This is going to give you life that you don't have. I read a guy the other day that said this. He said, you know, we're always worried with people about applying their Christianity. He said, we probably need to be much more concerned about do people got Christianity to begin with? Or do they just have religion? Or churchianity? Or just some moral code they live by? Or do they have life? The life that comes from Jesus. The life that comes through Him when He says, I've come that you might have life. Yes, dear. Huh. 
question is for the recording, you know, he's, did Jesus come to start a religion at all? I, I don't, you're going to get my opinion here, obviously. I don't think so. I think he came to bring a relationship with people to God. Now, let's say that this way. When people are in relationship with one another to God, they get together. They have groups. You know, they, they talk together. We, there's some organization. It's like Marty said, you know, people are against organized religion. He said, well, I'll help you disorganize some religion if you want it, you know. There's some necessary about it, but no, I, and I think, you know, what happens is we, we put too much emphasis upon the religion instead of the relationship. It, it, it's a life. Anybody, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to admit this, but anybody ever seen Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> yeah. I've been trying to get Warner Brothers to give me release to use part of that film in class. Because when I saw that, remember these two crazy guys go to this place and the guy dies, and if you haven't seen it, don't go watch it. I'll be, I'll be causing you to sin if you go see Yeah. Anyway, this guy dies that owns the place, and so they drag him around all weekend, dress him up, care because he's their meal ticket. But the guy's dead. You can't make him alive. I, I thought when I saw that, I thought, man, how many years did I live my Christian life like that? I was trying to dress myself up like I was alive. I was trying to dress myself up like I had strength and power, and I didn't have anything. I was dead. It wasn't that I was bad. That wasn't the problem. It was I was dead. So Jesus comes to bring us life. And he says, if you'll come to me and believe in me, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst again. Could I get an amen on that for some of us? Amen. Listen, think about this. I, when I was thinking about this, I, I, aren't there, haven't there been times when you've just eaten because you didn't have anything else to do? You know? Yeah, we would just eat, right? I know none of y'all do that. Isn't there also times when you eat and you get to say, I'm just not satisfied, right? I tell you, when, when Becky and I were in seminary, uh, I was in seminary, she was wor- working and paying my way, which was wonderful. Uh, we lived in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, I'd grown up in Texas it, it, all my life, and yeah, that's not a good place now. <laughs> Although they're welcome, and I'll explain that later. Uh, <clears throat> For a running back. Uh, um, uh, we, we were there, and I'd grown up all my life in Texas, and, you know, you just get to the point, I don't care what you eat, you got to have Mexican food, right? Anybody? Comes a point, there's a, there's, a, there's a threshold, and Becky and I had found this little burg called Taco Tico, which was terrible. And uh, we would go there and eat, eat. I remember one time I was going up there, and I said, uh, had this order, and I said, yeah, I want some chips also. And I'm not kidding you, in Lexington, Kentucky, on Versailles Road, that's how they pronounce Versailles. It's spelled the same exact way, but it's Versailles Road. And it's not Athens, it's Athens. And uh, so I'm standing there, I say, y'all have some chips. And I'm not kidding, the girl, little, bless her heart, she goes, uh, please add to that uh, one order of tortilla chips. <clears throat> so I, mean, I knew, I knew this wasn't going to work. You know. So... <clears throat> I told Becky one day, I just said, look, I'm going to get off work at UPS at 7.30 that morning. She worked at the University of Kentucky in a graduate school. I want you to take a day of vacation. I'm going to cut class, and I'm going to run the risk. I had uh, James Taylor, a uh, guy that I sat by class, for some of you that know about missions. This guy was the great, great, great grandson of James Hudson Taylor. And I sat right by him in class, just an incredible guy. Had him, had him record uh, uh, a lecture I was going to miss with Dr. Joseph Wong, which I could barely understand him in class. You just have no idea what he sounded like on tape. <laughs> I just put it away. I thought, well, forget it. Anyway, I said to her, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. 
you're going to get a vacation day. I'm going to cut class. We're driving to Nashville, Tennessee. The only place I know close around here is there's an El Chico in the Rivergate Mall in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> okay? So we're going. We're going to leave. We're going to drive down there. It's 230 miles one way. <clears throat> we're going to go down there. We're going to set ourselves down. We're going to order some real Mexican food, and we're going to eat till we pass out. <clears throat> when we wake up, we'll drive back. We drove 460 miles, had the most incredible enchiladas I've ever had in my life. The whole story was that we drove down there because we couldn't get satisfied with what we were eating. Listen to me. If you're not feeding on Jesus, that's why you're not satisfied. A car's not going to do it. A house is not going to do it. A vacation's not going to do it. A new husband or new wife's not going to do it. A new thing's not going to do it. You just keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. And you'll finally come to the conclusion, this isn't satisfying me. Why? Because you need the bread of life. I couldn't get satisfied at Taco Tico. I couldn't get satisfied. I went to this other place and they said, that's Mexican food. I said, no, 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 no. That's a Kentuckian that put some beans on top of a tortilla. Couldn't satisfy me. Couldn't satisfy me. We all had this experience where we eat and eat, but we're not satisfied. Jesus said, I'm the bread that'll bring satisfaction to you. I could, we could go around this room and several people would say this in a heartbeat. You know what? Jesus has satisfied the longing in my soul. He's given me purpose and meaning and enabled me to live my life. And so I think what Jesus is saying, what Abraham Lincoln said a long time ago, and that's this. And in the end, it's not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years. We sometimes think we're going to really start living later. We think sometimes, well, you know, when I retire. You know, well, when the kids get out of the house. And you know, and, and you keep moving and not giving them the forwarding address. I know, but it's the, not the years of your life. It's the life in your years. And Jesus said, I, I've, I've come to bring that. I've come to bring life to your years. Not merely existence. So what if this week, I think I put it, what if this week, every time you eat food or bread, you pause and you thank God for Jesus as the bread that gives life. Today, when you go to lunch, I want to put this in your brain. <clears throat> just pause. You don't have to stand up and pray or do it. Just, just pause. And you say, you know what? This bread or this food or these enchiladas or whatever I'm eating, remind me that this, this is not going to bring me life. This will sustain me physically. This will keep me going. This is existence. But I pause here and thank Jesus that He is the one who gives me life. Does that make sense? Jesus is real clear here. He, he, he'll say in other places, I go over here, I, I, you know, I said verse 48, I am the bread of life. In verse, your, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread of which I give for life is the word is my flesh. Jesus given himself. Look, I, I know many of us find ourselves in tough situations. I'm not saying this life is easy. I'm not saying it just makes everything go away. But I'm telling you, down deep in our soul, down deep in our hearts, we know there's more to life than just living. There is this life that Jesus brings that brings me. And if you don't know Him, if you just have been around Him, if you've settled for the husk of religion or you've settled for the husk of churchianity, just say to Jesus, hey, I want what you got. I want what you have. 
I want life that comes from you. I'm tired of fiddling around. I'm tired of jumping around the edges on this. I need life. And because of that, he'll bring it. Now, second thing here, let's look real quick. Jesus confronts the issue of life, I think, here. <clears throat> There's an issue here. And I, I have a lot of time, so I, want to make, I hope I'm going to make i got pages and pages and pages. Look what Jesus says here in verse 36 and 37. But I say to you that you've seen me, yet you don't believe. You've seen me, but you don't believe. All that the Father give to me will come to me. Now, this is a big <clears throat> issue. This is a big matter in life. If you've been around church, you've been around people, you know... I'll just say it this way. When John Calvin was writing his Institutes, the great concern that Calvin had was to say, if the gospel is in fact the most wonderful news in the world, why is it that some respond and some don't? Now, I'm with him to there. I'm with him to there. It is a great mystery. Although I won't follow him as far to say, where he would say is that God has elected some to be saved and some to be damned. Uh, I have some other theological commitments and other understanding that I can't go... But that's a big question. You know, you've seen me, but you don't... And, and Jesus, all that the Father give to me will come to me. You know, <clears throat> this idea of confronting this issue, I, I want to I talk to you about it here as best I understand. John states here that even though they have seen his works, they still don't believe. I think we sometimes carry the notion that, well, you know what, if, if I was alive back then, would you, I would have been one of his. Maybe not. <laughs> you know, we, we get on the Israelite, people of Israel and say, wow, how could they, uh, you know, not believe after seeing all that? Well, how, how about you? <laughs> how about me? We see all kinds of stuff all the time and we still doubt, don't we? Here's the issue. This isn't just a matter, if you will, of me turning up my brain power and seeing things and logically analyzing and controlling everything, that all of a sudden I believe. Some have read this to suggest that this proves that in fact what Calvin said was in fact true, that there are only some who have been elected or chosen, and that word is there in the Scriptures. I'd, I'd be glad to talk to you about it, what it means. And there are some that are elected to damnation. And Wesley, again, I, you know, some of my commitments are, Wesley said the reason he couldn't follow that couple reasons. He felt like that was a misreading of the Bible. And the second thing was that it, that it, that it went cut across what he called God's, God's primitive nature. Calvin believed that God's primitive nature was sovereignty. And Wesley believed that God's primitive nature was love. And I would suggest to you, whenever you dislocate sovereignty from love, you get a bully. When you dislocate omniscience from love, you get someone who knows what's going to happen and doesn't care that it does happen to you. Whenever you disassociate these characteristics of God from His primitive or primal nature of love. Now, don't get hung up here because love is vigorous with God. He's not just some you know, phony, baloney, good time rock and roll guy. You know, his love, it has some very wonderful features about it. It's both... Uh, Loving and just and all the but but we 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 get these things disassociated and, and Wesley said that it, if anything that causes you to fail to recognize that God's primal or primitive nature is love is going to get you off the mark. That's that's his thinking. Now Jesus does reveal here that he says all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Let me back up a little bit though. 
John 5 and 6 are this big section about Jesus' ministry. They're, they're all together right there. And it seems to me that what Jesus is saying here is one, is that all that the Father give to me will come to me. In other words, there's a direct correlation here. You can look down in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We'll look at that here in a minute. That's because what Jesus has said before in chapter 5, let me give you the passage, in 5.23 and in 5.37 and throughout that section, Jesus says this, you don't come to me because you don't know the Father. You don't know the Father. Now think about that, what he's saying to Jewish people and religious leaders. You don't know. Look, he says in 5.23, So all who honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent me. And verse 37, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You neither have heard his voice at any time or seen his form. You do not have his word abiding. Jesus is saying this, If you don't know the Father, you won't come to me. There's a, he's trying to connect. That's why he uses the word, I am. Because he's saying, I am one with the Father. This is not some idea that, in my judgment, that God has chosen some to be saved and some to be damned. He's saying this, when you reject the Father, you can't come to me. Right? I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, you've rejected the Father. You don't know Him. You don't know who He is. If you don't know who He is and you reject Him, you won't come to me. The Jewish leaders have rejected the Father. Their rejection is clear. Jesus is revealing that these people who are religious leaders do not know the Father. And you can't know the Son if you don't know the Father. And you can't know the Father if you don't know the Son. Watch this as well. The Jewish leaders have also rejected Moses. Back in chapter 5, 46 and 47. He says this, If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. Or you wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? Jesus is connecting things here. He's saying if you're going to trust me and believe me, it's because you know my Father. Because you, all that my Father gives to me will come to me. But if you don't know him, you won't come to me. I know this is thick stuff here, but this has to do with what Jesus is trying to say. That you, if you reject the Father, if you decide, I, like these people have, you're not coming to Jesus. Jesus and the Father are one. Yes. I think if I'm hearing you right, what 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 I think you're saying is that the way we come to know Jesus is what? Right. Yeah. Uh, Arminius. Yeah. Yes. We can talk about this if you want to in more, in more detail. But what does, I believe the Scriptures teach and what Ephesians 1 and others teach is that the way to God has been predestined through Jesus. That's what's been... That's what's been Karl Barth lines this out. Jacob Arminius, John Wesley. Uh, 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 boy, these guys leave me. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, some other guy. That the way has been preordained. The method. Let me say it this way. Um, now that we got me on this here, oh, we're gonna. I gotta hurry. I, I could liken it like this: when the architect designed this room, he predestined how you're going to get out of here. Here, here, or here. 
He didn't decide who would go through the door, but he decided this is the way out. God did not preordain, in my judgment, he didn't preordain who would be saved. He predestined how. That's the plan. That's the plan. So if you reject the Father, you reject the Son. He even said earlier in 23, if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. Now let me, let me take this one step further. I'm going to sound a little contradictory here. John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I would suggest to you again <clears throat> that this part of Jesus' understanding is that He and the Father are one. When you reject the Father, when you reject the, you, you cannot be drawn to the Son. Here's, here's the thing, though, the thing that concerns me. <clears throat> because uh, in, in, in Wesleyan thought or other things like that, I, I teach students uh, at a university, and I know in the American psyche, there is a can-do-it mentality, right? You know that? <clears throat> we got it, don't we? I mean, we, and, and for good, for some reasons, you know, there's an, there's an optimism in Americans that enables them to do incredible things. This is usually a good trait that, that can, we, we feel like we can do it if we could just, you know, get our whatever out of the way. I don't know. I mean, I've got so many political things in my head right now, I can't even think. <clears throat> But, 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 but the notion is that we're can-do-it kind of people. And, and here's where I'm a little concerned. Here's where I'm a little concerned. Jesus is saying that the Father draws people. Now, again, I would say He's doing that all the time. He's concerned about that. But I don't think that often that we help people understand how desperate our situation is as He's drawing us. Jesus said later in John 8, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Whoever, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And I grew up in a church that believed, listen to me very carefully on this. I, live in a, I grew up in a church that believed in free will. Nobody believes that. Theologically. Because what we think we mean by free will, I, I can choose. I can actually, anytime I want to. Right? Wesley and others taught a freed will. A freed will through the grace of God. A freed, let me, let me explain this now, freed through the grace of God. That human beings are dead. That's why Jesus said you need the bread of life. If you want to look at some of this, you can look at Romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 12. There's no one that seeks after God. There's none that are righteous. No, not one. Not even one. You notice that? I mean, Paul's pretty straight when he says, no one seeks after God. No one seeks His way. Not one. Not even one. So that, yes. I'm coming to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to that. Yeah. What I want to say is this. It is a, in my judgment, you know, you don't have to, remember the thoughts and opinions of the teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, but elders are leadership. I could do a commercial now. I can talk that fast. I could do a commercial now. We have such this optimism in America and in some evangelical circles that people think they can wake up someday and decide on their own if they want to be a Christian. That's not true. Scripture is pretty clear, I think, that God's grace operates on people 
and begins to work in their lives. Wesley called it prevenient grace. P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T. P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T. Prevenient grace. It's the kind of grace that God extends to people when they hear the gospel. See, because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ or Jesus. The prevenient grace is the grace that awakens a person. A prevenient grace is the grace that when they hear the gospel, the bondage of sin that has them begins to free them. Begins to free them. Now, what I'm saying is this. Here's, here's, the, here, here's the difficulty I work with my students. When I hear a student say this, well, I know the Lord is dealing with me and I should respond to Him and I should return to Him, but I'm going to wait. What that assumes is I'm in control. I'm in control. I can determine when and where I'll respond. And I just want to say to you, you're not. See, that's that free will gone berserk. Wesley called it libertine freedom. That you're completely free. That's not true. Sin causes us to be enslaved. It causes appetites and habits and things. And we get enslaved by it. You're not libertinely free. The Scriptures teach that, I think, clearly. And what it's created in us is the sense in which we're in control. And we can decide. And we can wait. And we can just defer. And it's created, I think, in my students what I see is a sense of no longer God-dependence, but self-dependence. I can wait. Because I know I can do it later. And I say to them, are you sure? How do you know that? How do you know? You know, the, 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 the church fathers and others compounded this issue when they helped us to understand or helped us with this, that it's our awareness of our need. Wesley said it this way, prevenient grace is this. This is, this is what it is. It's to make us aware of our need for Jesus and gives us the ability to respond. It's all God's grace. Nobody's ever believed in church history that you just kind of did this on your own. It was always the grace of God. The empowering grace of God that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel that then awakens a person, shows them their need, and gives them the ability to respond. We used to sing a song that we said that all the time. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Don't you remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, don't you remember you're just bumping along in life and doing all your thing and you're feeling great about it. And suddenly, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through prevenient grace, begins to give you some concern about your soul. Hey, things aren't right here. Now, where we, where we get hung up in my church is we never sang the second tune. <laughs> we just said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You know, I told, Remember that song we sing? I'm a friend of God. I used to sing that. I am afraid of God. I am afraid of God. I am afraid of God. I am afraid. Works great. That, that's where they left us. And grace, my fear is relieved. Hey, God showed me my condition. He showed you your condition. He gave you in technicolor. Cliff, this is where you are. You weren't looking for me. You weren't trying to find me. You weren't seeking me. The Scripture says you don't do that. And I found you. Hallelujah. We call that prevenient grace. How precious did that grace appear? The hour I first believed. Here's what I'm concerned about. 
is as we talk about free will instead of freed will through the gospel, we become less dependent on God all the time. It's all about us. And I'm real concerned for my students that they think they're in so much control that when the Spirit of God deals with them and calls them and draws them because they've misunderstood this teaching on freed will, they believe I can wait and choose later if I want to. Well, maybe. I can just tell you this. Nobody in church history has believed that except a couple of heretics. Could be, yeah. I will tell you this. It's interesting to me. Uh, in most, it, it, I've been talking about this in different, a couple different places. That, that one of the things we ought to understand, I'm an old guy now, right? You know, I'm turned, whatever that is. Let me tell you, here's the data I can prove to you if you want to see it. You and I, if you're over 40, 45, struggle with legalism. Probably to this day. Nobody under 40 is struggling with legalism. I don't mean to offend you if you're under 40. But my understanding and work has been that most people are not struggling with legalism. They're struggling with antinomianism. They can kind of live any way they want to and Jesus loves them and it'll be okay. There's a whole lot of truth to that and a whole lot of not truth to that. And that's the struggle I think some of us are dealing with now. I want to tell you, I don't have a student in my class that has a legalistic bone in their body. It's a different generation. And I'm not talking down to them or bad about them. It's just different. But this idea about grace, that God's grace... You know, let me, let me read you a couple of verses real quick and I'm going to be finished. Listen, prevenient grace is always work. God is working to draw us all the time. And i got to get some. But you ought to read this in Acts 11, 18 sometimes. When Peter comes back and, uh, and reports what happened at Cornelius' house, it says they rejoice, and the, here's the line, that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. Really? You mean we're that dependent on God? That we need to humble ourselves and Him to grant us? I'm just saying, this optimism, this kind of can-do-it thing has created serious problems with us that we think we're in charge. Listen, God loves you. Prevenient grace is being extended all the time. He's working toward you. He's kind of, but it's still dependent on Him. Listen to this in, uh, in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. Go look at it. 224 and 25, where, where, where Paul says of this, you know, as a pastor, they should be kind and gentle, like that's why I'm not one. <laughs> should be kind and gentle like that. He said, and that through their work, that God might grant repentance to those who hear. You know what the Puritans used to say? Pray, pray, pray for repentance. Pray to God and say, give me repentance. Give it. I am not in control here, God. My own heart will deceive me. Now that's terrible news to hear. But what if you did this this week? Just thought. What if by the end of this day, Sunday, you took a moment and knelt down? You know, I think, I think posture sometimes matters. Kneel down in prayers and express your dependence upon the Father. Before this day's over. You kneel. You take the position to say, Jesus, Father, You are the strength and the power of my life. And this free will idea that I'm completely free, I can choose, 
is only depend is only possible because you have freed my will through prevenient grace. And God is scandalous with this kind of grace, let me tell you. He pours it out on everybody. God pours prevenient grace out on it. Quit trying to figure out which group you're in. Or like Just say God's prevenient grace is poured out scandalously on believer, on non-believer, on people you don't even think could ever believe, on people that you think are ungodly, on people that you think are lost and going to hell because they serve another God. I don't, whatever. That God is scandalously pouring this out. I want to end with this. Give me one minute. The comfort us about the will of God. Before you leave this place, I want you to hear this. Before you leave, the, and I, I'm not coming back I'll, next week with this. I'll, maybe. <laughs> Jesus said this, all that the Father give to me will come to me. Why? Because they've accepted the Father. You don't accept the Father, you're not coming to Jesus. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. The comfort about God's will. Listen to me, listen to me. If you've come to Jesus, if you've recognized Him as the Savior of the world, I don't care what you've done or where you've been or how many times you've come back. Here's the promise. I will never cast them out. It's a funny thing in Greek here. This is one of the few places that Jesus is translated by John, something from Aramaic to here, to say this. There are two ways to say no in Greek. I love this one. It's the letters O-U. I will stand before God. I promise you that is the truth. O-U means no in Greek. Hallelujah. (laughs) That's what it means. No. No. And it is used only in the declarative, or we call in Greek the indicative mood. In Greek, as in English, there's declarative mood. There's imperative mood. There's subjective mood, or subjunctive mood. And in Greek, there's also called optative mood. It's a very strange one. In this passage, the word no is back to back. back. The first one is O-U. The second one is me, M-E, long E. Which means that this sentence is written in such a way, whether it's written in the indicative, the imperative, in the subjunctive, in the optative, it means no. So the other words is this. You can't have any way this sentence is written that it doesn't mean, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. Hallelujah, right? Never. Never. This idea here, it cannot. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, made this statement. He said what, he, he had been a terrible sinner and he continued to sin some after he became a Christian, like a couple of you and, you know, and me. Bunyan said this. John 6.37, listen, listen, he said, this is the verse that the devil fought me over more than any other verse in the Bible. He said, I had to fight him to hold on to this. I I wish I had time to tell you my own life when I was in college. This this verse is the only one that saved me from insanity. I said, "But, but Jesus, I did this. But he said, I said, if you'll come, I'll not cast you out. But, but I did it. He said, but I didn't say, Cliff, if you come to me, unless you've done this, I'll cast you out. But, but Lord, I, I knew when I did this in college. I knew it was wrong. Cliff, I didn't say, all that come to Father will give to me and whoever comes to me, unless they've done that, I won't cast them out. Every objection 
that I had. Every, and, that was, and I knew him. And, and the devil said, he's right, he's right, he's right. And you do that when you start confessing? The devil's there. He's right. Boy, he, that's true. Cliff's right. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, the comfort of the will of God is this. Quit trying to figure this whole thing out and understand this. That if you come to Jesus, it's because you believe the Father. That's the connection. And if you come to Him, He'll never cast you out. Ever. Never. Under no circumstance or no way. Just get to Him, will you? Just get to Him. And He'll not get. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a promise. Uh, John Bunyan held onto this for many years of his life. And yet it wasn't easy to hold on to. He had to fight the devil. And we know that there are tender, sensitive souls here today who the devil will fight with all of his might to wrestle this verse away from them. I pray, Lord Jesus, they will drive a stake in the ground. They will place their hope in the beautiful words of Jesus that all that the Father gives to me will Come to me and our coming to you is evidence that we have been given by the Father and you will in no way cast us out. Help us today to live in the wonder and the glory of this scandalous love that comes from Jesus. We pray this in his strong name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.